Okay, good morning. Good morning. Um, if you have a Bible, do you want to turn to John chapter 13? And if you don't, don't worry, we'll put it up here. But it's always good to have it open because you can read through it and your mind can wander and you can look at connections in the passage and just get used to finding text in the Bible. But we're going to be in John 13. And as Joe said at the start of the meeting, we've been doing a little series on God the Father in the Gospel of John and walking through and seeing what John reveals to us about the person of God the Father. And two weeks ago, we started by talking about how the Father is revealed in the Son, that there's no God who is not like Jesus. That was two weeks back. And then last week, Jez was talking about how the Father works, about how he initiates, how he heals, how he demonstrates his love and his power in our lives. And then this week, we're going to be in John 13, and we're going to be looking at the Father who gives all things to the Son. The Father who gives all things to the Son. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, this is new to you, and one or two may, may well be in that position, and I just want to summarize the Christian story, if that's true. Okay, so this is how Christianity works in a minute and a half or something. Right? So there's a three-in-one God who is happy and delighted and loves creating, and he overflows out of joy into creating a world. And he puts humans in that world, and the human beings turn their backs on God, and it causes all kinds of just terrible consequences for everything. And so God, in order to resolve that, calls a nation, first of all a man, Abraham, and then a nation, Israel, and says, you go and bless the world. Be be the answer, be the reason why the world will now become blessed and become right. And sometimes they get it right and sometimes they get it wrong. And after a, lo- a long time has passed, but at the right time, God then comes himself. He enters the play that he's written, if you like, as a human. And he comes as a Jewish person to fulfill everything that he'd called Israel to do and more. And he comes as a Jewish person to, um, rather than smiting his enemies and consuming them with fire, he comes to heal and to bless and to teach and instruct and to demonstrate the power of God. And actually, more than that, he comes to serve and eventually comes to die on behalf of his people and then to die as a substitute and then rise again from death. And then he ascends from there back to the Father and pours out his Holy Spirit, his, the three-in-one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Holy Spirit gets given to his people, and he now says, go into the world again and bless them, and one day he will come back, and he's going to come and restore all things and swallow up death forever and wipe away every tear and heal all sicknesses, and that's the Christian story. And the whole shape of that story pivots on a three-day weekend in probably AD 30. We, from what best we can tell, is between Thursday the 6th and Sunday the 9th of April, AD 30. That's crucial three days. The whole world turns on that fulcrum. That's the definitive marker between one age and the next. It makes all the difference in the world. And it's the essence of Christianity taking place in that weekend. And that weekend starts with the story we're about to read. Now, this, is, this is how that weekend begins. Thursday evening, John chapter 13 and verse 1. Now... Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it round his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but afterwards, 
you will understand. Peter said to him, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only then, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but it's completely clean, and you are clean. But not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he'd washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now, for those with ears to hear, this is one of the strangest stories in the Bible. And the fact that it doesn't seem strange is probably a sign of the fact that we've become so familiar with the story that we don't realize why it's odd. It's over-familiarity, I suspect. This is God in human form washing feet. That ought to be a kind of (gasps) sort of moment. Now, we know it, many of us. We've been around the block. Maybe some of us have been Christians for a long time and have heard this story talked about and, and read it to our children, perhaps, and therefore don't realize how odd it is. But when you hear the idea that God is washing feet There is something shocking about that. And you go to a culture where people don't already know this story and you tell them, people will be very, very surprised because that's not what their notion of deity is like. Foot washing is a horrible activity, a very unpleasant activity in that kind of world. It's not that nice in our kind of world, but in our world, feet are generally pretty hygienically kept. Now, you might be sitting next to somebody and you can already smell a wafting aroma from their feet if you do. Please don't make it visibly obvious that you do. Wilco, for instance, feet are out. He's just sort of gradually fanning them up. In fact, they're pretty filthy on the underside, Mark. Um, Stroking Ollie on the knee with his feet, which is a little unpleasant. But most of us probably have socks, shoes. Even if we do come in with feet, the chances are we didn't walk here barefoot from home, Mark. Am I right? He's not even listening. Did you walk from home in bare feet? I didn't, no. You didn't, okay. So you're fine. So most of us probably, my wife is, to be honest, tends towards the smelly feet end of the spectrum. So I'm kind of familiar with it a little bit, and she would be actually quite proud of it. Um, so a little bit familiar with that. But this, in, even in our world, to wash somebody's feet would be relatively demeaning, and feet smell at the best of times. My dad, when I was a kid, you know those things which parents tell you, which you don't realize aren't true until you're way older than you should have. Have you had that experience? You're, I can look at this. The clerks are sitting there grinning at me. They're going, we've done that loads of times. Parents tell lies to young children as a joke, and they don't realize that they're lies until they're way too old. That, in my family, that was my dad about feet. He told me that Parmesan cheese, when I was about six, he said Parmesan cheese has been grated off the Italian's feet. That's how he described what it was. And he just said, oh, no, we don't have Parmesan here. Oh, that's been grated off the Italian's feet. And when you hear it, you just think, oh, obviously. And then you go on through life. And it's m- I was probably about 13 before I realized that wasn't actually how it was made. And um, so feet are an unpleasant thing. Right? Generally, feet are smelly. But in the Middle East, at the end of a long, dusty, sweaty day, 
feet would smell a lot more. You imagine you've got sweat and dust and ground and fragments of animal feces all bound up in your sandals. It's an unpleasant thing to wash them. Not only that, but in their world, washing feet was something that wasn't just some, it wasn't most mildly unpleasant. In our, in our culture, for instance, the kind of person who might wash somebody else's feet might, for instance, be a carer. But in their world, the only people who would wash feet would be a slave. So as soon as you washed somebody's feet, you were demeaning yourself to the extent that you were saying, I am now your slave. That was even more shocking. So yes, it's unpleasant on, it, on its own, but it's also a symbol of something in their culture that is deeply degrading and humiliating. So ordinary citizens believed it was beneath them. That's what the discussion with Peter is all about. You're not going to do this. That's ridiculous. You can't wash my feet. I should wash yours because you are God. You are my Lord. There's no way. This is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. And not only that, but Jesus is clear that this isn't even the whole story, that this is just the beginning. He says, you don't understand this now, but afterwards you will. What's he talking about? Well, in a few hours' time, I am going to serve you and be slave-like to you in a way that will make washing your feet look trivial. I'm going to die for you. And when I do, you will understand what this means, that I have become as a slave to serve you in order to make you clean. You see, so he's deliberately doing one as an embodied action of the other. So the question is, if, if it's shocking on three levels, feet stink, it's a slave's job, and he's going to do it as a sign of something even worse, why does God do that? What kind of God are we talking about such that he is prepared to go and wash the feet of his friends, taking the nature of a slave? How does the, the, the star maker become a servant? How does that even work? How does the creator of feet end up scrubbing them? That's what he is. You know, it's just extraordinary. And I think the answer comes in verse 3 of the text we've just read. In verse 3 it says, Jesus, comma, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God, comma, rose from supper. I'm not, the commas aren't in Greek, but you know, you see, there's a long clause. Jesus rose from supper. But in the middle, he's got three things that are grounding this action, right? He knows that the Father has given him all things, one. He has come from God, two, and he's going back to God, three. Right? He knows where he's come from. He knows his origin or his identity. He knows where he's going, his destiny. And he knows that he's been given all things. That's his inheritance, if you like. And he knows those three things. And because he does, he is prepared to get up from supper and now serve them as a slave. When you know that you have been given all things, you don't feel the slightest bit worried about serving people. Security breeds service, if you think about it. When people are deeply secure and grounded in who they are, they are very able to make themselves nothing for others. When people are insecure and desperately trying to make themselves feel affirmed, they don't serve people because they feel it's beneath them and they're worried that if they stoop too low that they will end up getting stuck there. People who know they've already been given all things don't worry about serving people. You notice the connection. Jesus, knowing the Father had given him, rose from supper and served them as a slave. But it's consistent when you, you actually look at normal people in normal life. Secure people serve. Gifted people give. People who don't think they have enough and are continually trying to get more don't give away. They become stingy because they don't think they're going to have enough. People who say, do you know what? No matter what I give away, I always get more back and I've got far more than I need anyway, so let's be generous. Those people give a lot and the same is true in serving. It's insecure people who worry that they don't have enough and that they never will, who don't stoop to serve other people. And therefore they lose it. 
And I was thinking about this um, in the last couple of weeks because of a, gu- a guy who became a YouTube sensation uh, whose name is Ronnie Pickering. Has anybody heard of Ronnie Pickering? Does anybody? You have. Good. And you have. Right. So Ronnie Pickering became. So this is a picture of Ronnie Pickering. Have you seen this man anywhere? Right. That is Ronnie Pickering. Right. Now he is a guy who's somewhere. Exactly. Who? He's somewhere in um kind of Hull. I think is it the, the Hull area. Um, and he basically became a big celebrity a couple of weeks back because he was driving and he got cut up by a motorcyclist. And the motorcyclist had a, one of those sort of was filming the event through something. I think probably he. You know, as sometimes people do for driving, end up filming everything they're doing as a driver. And so he ends up filming this entire exchange. The guy cuts him up, and you can see the motorcycle helmet in the, in the window, right, reflecting back. And this guy, it's funny, not because he starts shouting, he really goes, rah, 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 it's real yelling fit, but that wouldn't in itself make it funny. The reason it's funny is because he pitches his entire aggression on the fact that the other guy should know who he is, and he doesn't. And he, starts, he basically gets cut up, and he goes, do you know who I am? Can't believe you do that, let's have some fisticuffs. Do you know who I am? And the guy says, who are you? Go on then, who are you then? I'm Ronnie Pickering. Oh, who's Ronnie Pickering? Don't know who Ronnie Pickering is, who's that? I'm Ronnie, I'm going to have you. Anyway, this whole thing kicks off and it's quite funny because you're watching I know they don't sound like that in Hull but I've only got one northern accent in my toolkit um, anyway he, he, they have this whole thing and then they drive off and then the motorcyclist decides to add fuel to the fire and kind of comes on the inside and snoops alongside him in the pedestrian where the pedestrians would walk on the cycle lane and then the guy stops again and the reason that's funny is because in this shot you can't see that his wife is in the car but she is, and she's not at all impressed because she's heard the Ronnie Pickering routine too many times. So the motorcyclist comes in on the underside, and so the second showdown takes place across the wife. So the motorcyclist is going, who are you then? What's that? Ronnie Pickering? Don't know who you are. And he's going, I'm Ronnie. I'm going to have you. Come out here, fisticuffs. I'm going to get all this stuff. And in the middle, there is this woman who literally, this is her face, she's like, it's just marvellous television. And that's basically why it's a funny clip. And I think he's now become a bit of a sensation and had loads of newspaper articles on him and all the rest of it. And in some ways, he embodies to me what people do and what people are like when they don't actually feel very secure. They're continually projecting themselves on the world and forcing other people to listen to them and take them seriously. You don't serve people. You don't let it go when someone cuts you up if you are insecure because you're continually trying to force. And, don't you know who I am? I'm Andrew Wilson. You need to listen to me otherwise I'm going to have you and you have that kind of mentality to the world around you because you don't feel very grounded you don't know who you are you don't know that the father has given all things into your hand so you don't take towels and bowls and serve and wash feet you actually try and insist that people do know who you are and you make the most of the little things you have to feel more stable in contrast I read a story a couple of weeks ago about a violinist by the name of Joshua Bell Joshua Bell has anybody heard of him You have, okay? So apparently he's pretty good at the violin, right? One of the leading virtuosos of his generation. I don't want to make this up, but that's what I've I've been told. Anyway, Joshua Bell is, they do do an experiment in the Washington Post, which is one of the leading newspapers in America, and they do an experiment to establish whether or not you can find beauty in unexpected places. And so they say, we would like Joshua Bell to play his Stradivarius violin, which is worth three and a half million dollars, on the Washington subway as people are coming into work. So people, the, the rush hour is taking place in Washington and between whatever it is, 7.30 and 8.30, he plays as a busker playing away on the Washington subway. Been the, one of the busiest stations in the city with all of these government workers going past. Tickets for his show the previous night had sold for $100 plus. And he stands there busking. Almost no one notices, nobody knows who he is. Uh, nobody notices who he is and he gets $32.17 for an hour of playing a $3.5 million violin for an hour in the rush hour. 
And I, th- I suspect that as he did that, I don't know, but uh, there's, no rec- there's no record of him standing there going, don't you know who I am? I'm Joshua Bell, and if you don't realize how good I am on the violin, I'm going to have you. He doesn't do that because he knows that he's a brilliant violinist. He knows that the violin he's got is a, one of the best examples of craftsmanship ever. He knows that he is a brilliant virtuoso and that people who really know what they're doing recognize him as such. So when he finishes his little performance, he puts his violin back in his case, takes his $32.17, goes home and thinks, these guys just missed a trick. They're going to read about it soon in the Washington Post. But you know, the difference between those two men is actually that one of them is very aware of how gifted they are and so doesn't project it on the world and the other one doesn't really know at all who they are and as a result is very forceful with what they are. There are people in life, and you know them, so do I, who are drains, and there are people who are fountains. There are people who, no matter how much affirmation and praise they try and suck into their lives, still it's nothing, there's nothing to show for it. It just disappears into the ground. And there's people who keep seeming to manage to serve and bubble up and overflow, and no matter how much they give, there never seems to run out. Yeah, there's drains and fountains. There's Ronnie Pickerings and there's Joshua Bells, and Jesus is a fountain. Jesus is a foot-washing fountain. He's someone who knows that the Father has given him all things into his hands, and as a result, he is able to serve and give off anything without saying, don't you know who I am? I'm Jesus of Nazareth. I'm the Lord of the world. He doesn't have to do that because he knows who he is, and he knows what the Father has entrusted to him. He is able to serve anybody in any way. He is able to serve us by washing our feet and by carrying our sicknesses, and by praying for our rescue, and suffering, and dying for our sins, because he knows the Father has given him all things. And the Father is a giving and sharing God, and Jesus knows that, and it's that that secures him to give up everything he has, because he knows the Father is a giver. And I had noticed that in the story, and what I was really surprised by is as I began to reflect on the stories Jesus tells about his Father, I was really struck by how many times in the... I'd never noticed it before until two weeks ago. How many times there is an assumption in the story that the God figure in the parable is a giver. Even when that's not the point of the story, which is interesting to me. You imagine if it's the point of the story, then you'd expect it. But often Jesus just drops in that the Father is like that without it even being relevant to the point he's making. So he says the Father is like a, the, a father who divides his property between his two sons. And then you go and waste that. And then to the other one, you, everything I have is yours. And then, oh, the young ones come back. Let's kill the fatted calf and celebrate. He's a giver. He's a God who gives away. The father is a God who plants a vineyard, which he loves, and then he gives to other tenants and says, you can come in and look after this thing which I cherish. He's a God who goes away on a journey and then gives away gifts of talents or miners to his staff and says, you have this one, you have this one, now put them to work, but I'm giving you gifts. That's just by default who God is pictured to be in the parables. He's a God who scatters seed liberally. He's got so much that he throws out, wanders out into the street, and wanders out into the farm field everywhere, and throws it, and some of it lands on the so- on soil. Great. Some of it doesn't. He's wasteful and abundant with the way he scatters seed. Some of it just lands on the path, and the birds eat it. But he's that kind of a God. He's a liberal giver. He's a kind of God who, for no particular reason, forgives a debt of millions of pounds to a servant, who then goes and doesn't forgive another one. He's a God who invites everyone from the community into his house and then says, nope, not enough people on the guest list. Go right out into the highways and hedgerows and bring them all in. I want my house to be full because I want this banquet to bless everybody. I'm a God who rewards workers in my vineyard with gifts and rewards that are so scandalously out of proportion to what the work they've done is that people start complaining about it. 
You notice that's about seven or eight different parables I've just quoted there, and, and they're all stories in which God's givingness, if that's probably not a word, but you know, God's givingness is somehow expressed often just as an incidental feature of the narrative. God is a giver, and Jesus knows that, and he continually drops it in because he's so shaped by it and understands it so clearly, and that means when it comes to his moment to serve, to wash, and to die, he is fully ready to take it on because he knows his Father has given him everything. He knew the Father was like that, and he knew the Father was not just like it in general, in a vague, generalized way, but in a very personalized way. He didn't just know the Father is a nice, giving, liberal God, he, meant, he knew the Father has given all things to me, and so I'm prepared to give up anything I have. I think that's how he resisted the temptation to conquer the world the wrong way when Satan went for him. Go on, you just bow down to me, I'll give you all this. Oh, really? All this? Move aside, snake. My Father already has given me all this. I don't need you. I don't need to worship you. I've already been given everything. When you know how much you have, you don't find that the sort of the threat of the temptation to seize it at all attractive because you've already got it. What can you give me that I don't already have? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, rose from supper and took a towel and a bowl. But Jesus is not the only person in Scripture who is said to have been given all things by the Father. I love this. This is Paul in Romans 8.32. He, God the Father, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He's, he's so aware. Paul is saying it's not even just that the Father gave all things to the Son, it's that the Father through the Son has given all things to us. Because he's given us the Son, you can be certain he's going to give you all things as well. And I love that. If the Father gave all things to the Son the Father gave all things to the Son and through Him gave him the Son to us, how can He not possibly also give you everything else you could ever need? Because the Son is far more substantial a gift than all things from God's point of view. That's the logic of this kind of passage. It's beautiful. It's like, and I made this, probably made this point before, some of you may have heard me say it, but it's like me saying, I am going to give you my new car and then you saying, can I keep the floor mats? And he's saying, of course you can keep the floor Floor mats? Why are we haggling about floor mats? Because I've just given you this huge car. That's really expensive, and the floor mats have cost you 20 quid at Halford. So why on earth would I argue the toss about the floor mats since I've given you the car? Having given you the car, how will I also, along with it, graciously give you the floor mats? And do you see how Paul pegs all things as the floor mats? We've had um, people living with us a, a, a lot over the last three years, in fact, almost the whole time. We've had um, so young single people staying with us and living with us, and it's been great. And the funny thing is, sometimes they get a wobble about a particular item that they think they have to ask permission to eat. And so they'll come in and they'll use the water and the gas, and we don't charge them because that's the way we've done it. They help out with the kids instead. Um, and so they, you know, they just use everything. They use our room and our space, and they use our hot water and our um, everything, right? And they use all our food and all our drink. And then sometimes they come in and go, oh, am I, can I have, am I allowed some Rice Krispies? I just think, what? I don't know why it's the, it might be the Rice Krispies or the marmalade or something, and you think, why are you fixating on that? I've given you all of this. What is the, did, they have, did they charge you for Rice Krispies as a kid? What is this? And there's something often that we, we kind of almost have to ask. Oh, that one thing there, some of you who've had lodgers may recognize that experience. I don't know. It may just be our family. We just look mean-spirited about Krispies. But the point is, for Paul, all things is like Rice Krispies when you've already been given the sun. 
If God has given you this, he's obviously going to give you that, so why are you even haggling about it? And that is the nature of the Father. If you have been given the Son, then all things come in on the Son's coattails, basically. Comes in with the bargain. So let no one boast in men, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, the world, life, death, the present, or the future, all things are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. People talk like that when they know that God has not only given all things to the Son, but through the Son given all things to us. Now, John 13 is not about you. It's about Jesus in that sense. He knew he was from the Father, was going to the Father, and had been given all things in the meantime. And so, as a result, he took a towel and a bowl, and he washed feet, and he died. But there is a powerful sense in which you and I live in exactly the same way as believers or followers of Jesus. We are those who also are born of the Father and are going to the Father and in the meantime, in Christ, have been given all things and as a result, we also are able to take a towel and a bowl and to wash one another's feet and yes, to die in our pursuit of self in order to honor him. That's what true freedom is. That's what liberty looks like when it's worked out. I don't have to assert myself on the world going, I'm Andrew Wilson. I can't believe I'm going to have you if you don't recognize me for what I am. Instead, you can say, like Joshua Bell, I will serve the world without recognition. I don't really mind if they notice or not. I'm not really doing it for them anyway. I'm doing it for him. And if he recognizes and acknowledges me, wonderful. I just hope to have been of some service, even if it's never noticed. I can use my gifts freely and I can serve without fear of not being recognized, safe and secure. And like the foot-washing fountain who saved the world, I can know that the Father has given me all things in him. Now, I'd just love us to respond. It's, gonna be a, it's a shorter talk today, and I'm going I'm to finish there. But I'd love us if, uh, if Ollie and the guys could just come out. And just for a moment, we could... I just believe there's a few gifts from the Father that he wants to just give us today. And just gifts of revelation. And so, as the, the band are going to come out, I'm going to put up, and Tiago, are you okay putting up this slide now? This is um, a list of, you may have seen things like this before. This is just a list of things that we are inclined to believe about God on the left. And a list of things that the Bible explicitly says God is on the right. And I believe the Holy Spirit wants to give us revelation today. And so I'm going to ask if we just, the band will start up, and if we can just stand together now, if that's okay, and just receive gifts from God. The reason I say receiving gifts from God, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit is given to us by God in order to reveal and illuminate the Father. That is one of the Holy Spirit's favorite things to do, is to show people what the Father's really like. And we've sung about that already, and we have been focusing on that in this series. But I believe God, again, would just want to give gifts of revelation to people in this room as we compare some of the things some of us will naturally think of one or two of those things on the left some of us may think of many of them and I believe the Holy Spirit by whom we cry out Abba Father the Spirit wants to come and minister to us and give us gifts and reveal to us again some of us are the obvious point that's often made in these sorts of talks is we we read the lens of who God is sorry we read who God is through the lens of our own father but I think there's some of us, I'm just struck by this even just now, I believe God may be speaking to some, that fathers here are inclined to read who God is through their own mistakes. And so it's not so much you had a bad father, it's just you're aware that you are sometimes. And that your mistakes then get foisted onto him. And actually God just wants to say and deposit in us the truth that God is generous and forgiving. 
and always affirming and accepting even when we are not. That for those of us who think, God is quiet, I just can't, he, I feel like he's trying to tell me something, but he's just not very good at communicating. He's one of those gods, one of those dads who just can't ever quite say what they mean and I can't hear him. And the Bible would say, God is really good at communicating. The God is a God who speaks and when he speaks, we understand that he has spoken page after page after book after book in his word to reveal to us what he's like and what he'd have us do. There's those of us who, who just struggle to see God as anything other than the, they, they like him, but a God who sort of gives you a task and then says, well done, you did well. That kind of a dad. But really struggle with the idea that God is a dad of toddlers. That God is a God who is affectionate and abundant and rough and tumbly, like I was yesterday with my son for the afternoon. Just a God who plays and a God who delights in the back and forth of dealing with little children. And God would say from Hosea 11.8, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I held him by the hands. I led him with cords of kindness. How can I give you up, Israel? He's that kind of a God. So I just believe God wants to impart delight to us, fresh sense of revelation of his fatherly personality to us and care for us. So I'm just going to leave that up there just for a few seconds longer. And then Ollie and the band will lead us into a time of singing about who the Father truly is.